We welcome change and openness, for we believe that freedom and security go together, that the advance of human liberty, the advance of human liberty can only strengthen the cause of world peace. There is one sign the Soviets can make that would be unmistakable, that would advance dramatically the cause of freedom and peace. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. That was President Ronald Reagan on June 12, 1989, calling on then-leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, to tear down the Berlin Wall. For 28 years, that wall divided Western Germany, the symbol of democracy, and Eastern Germany, the remaining post-World War II communist territories of the Soviet Union. On Christmas Day 1991, these territories became independent countries in the region of the world we know as Eurasia. Two of those countries I'm interested in are Russia and Ukraine. On this episode of What in the World, we're going to take a closer look at recent unrest in Ukraine and how it's impacted relationships between the United States and Russia. I thought we'd start with an understanding of sanctions, take a look back at the Cold War, and then do a deeper dive into Russia's annexation of Crimea, which actually used to belong to Ukraine. So have a listen. You have tuned into WERA LP 96.7 FM, Arlington, Virginia, streaming and on demand at WERA.FM. I am your host, Bumia Kinesotu, and this is What in the World. What in the World makes current issues of American foreign policy understandable and relevant to your everyday life. And joining me today is Alex Johnson, who is going to talk to us about recent events uh, that has occurred between the United States and Russia. In particular, the United States has approved uh, economic sanctions against Russia. So Alex is going to talk through that with us and help us understand what sanctions mean to us and what this relationship with Russia and some of the Eurasian countries um, actually has to do with our, our everyday lives. Alex has an interesting uh, background. So right now he is the senior policy advisor at the Open Society Foundations, where he works on Ukraine and Russian issues. But prior to that, Alex has worked on the ground uh, in interesting Eastern European countries. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But he has experience in freedom and human rights, particularly in countries that were formerly part of the Soviet Union. He's lived abroad in Austria, where he's helped very important people figure out how to address human rights issues in in Eastern Europe. And most recently, uh, he was at the Department of Defense under the Obama administration, where he worked on Ukraine and Russian issues there as well. So he is our Eurasia guy. And what I really like about Alex is he's a down to earth, cool dude. He's from Denver, Colorado, raised in Portland, Oregon. So Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's an honor to join the show. And so tell us what sparked your interest in foreign policy. Like, how did you go from, you know, Portland or, you know, the Midwest to now what is 
the Eastern European world and, and your interest in that space? Well, when I grew up initially in Denver and then later in Portland, I never thought I would leave the United States. And mainly as a, the circumstances of my neighborhood, I was reluctant in terms of starting a career in foreign policy. I didn't see, with all the problems happening in the United States, everything that I cared about was here. And I didn't see why I should be involved in what's happening everywhere else in the world. And so early on in my youth, I never even thought I'd leave the United States. I never thought I'd have the opportunity. And it wasn't until a professor, uh, Professor Steele at Oregon State University, who convinced me to get my first passport. He had a National Science Foundation grant to conduct research in Bulgaria to see what needed to happen for them to join the European Union. And so we worked closely with environmental organizations who were trying to make their environmental framework compatible with joining the European Union. So I went there with a bunch of students. You know, I, I spent a month in Bulgaria, a place I couldn't find on the map before that, and, and had a good time and learned about how people in other countries are facing the same challenges that we do. Right. And how did how did the conversation go with your mom when you told her or your parents, your dad, that, you know, you were about to leave to go to this place called Bulgaria? I mean, she she, like me, could not find it on a map <laughs> and, and didn't know, you know, the, anything about the experiences of of people there. And and so I assured her that it was safe and it was safe. I had a great time and met some phenomenal people. But it, I thought that was a footnote. At that point, that was a great opportunity that exposed me to the world, but had nothing to do with my personal passions and environmental justice mm -hmm. and uh, domestic policy around social justice issues. And so I had, I got after grad school, a Congressional Black Caucus Foundation fellowship and started working with Representative Al C. Hastings out of Florida. And he was the one who had been involved in all of this work in Europe and wow. transatlantic engagement. And while I was working on local issues for him, he said, hey, Alex, you need to see how other people are facing the same problems and, and figure out how to bring the innovation that they have discovered elsewhere back to America. I remember in some other conversations you and I have had I have thought about, you asked me, you know, why, why, what did you learn from your experience in Austria? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I think I had more questions and answers from that experience. Uh, but one thing I did learn is that diplomacy matters. The U.S. Department of State matters. People sacrifice every day to make sure that everyone else in the world understands what we value in right. America and what our lives are about, what we believe in. And it, it's a sacrifice. And, and you've, you, you touch on something interesting um, in, in talking about the values of this country. So you're an advocate for, you know, inclusive foreign policy and international exchange. And it seems like in your own personal life, you've been transformed by your experiences abroad. Can you talk just a little bit about the importance, importance of, you know, not just racial and ethnic diversity, but just, you know, having this country be reflect or having the people in other countries reflect the United States in a, in a, in a meaningful way to the rest of yeah. the world. Inclusive foreign policy matters. One of the things that's so important 
in my time, I lived about four years in Austria working in one of our embassies there. And I can't tell you how many times I went into rooms where no one expected me to be the person that they were meeting with and no one looked like me. And one thing that I was always proud of through that experience, I would say in my youth, I was disenchanted with the mysteries of Washington and, and the decisions that were made without having a voice where I grew up. And I think that experience actually instilled in me a level of patriotism mm. about understanding what our values mean. And even though we have all of these challenges in America, that we can rise above them because right. we can face them. Right. And I saw a lot of other delegations with similar diversity in their respective countries, and you would not see their ambassador or their other senior officials or anyone from their delegation in that matter reflect the true diversity right. of the countries right. that they represent. Right. And so at least as America, we strive to do that. There right. are programs at the State Department that do that every day. They train the next cadre of leadership of in foreign policy and right. diplomacy. Right. And you definitely um, have proven that you have uh, 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 learned a lot and certainly proven, I think, your patriotism and certainly knowledge about about these issues. So let's jump into <clears throat> the meat of why we're here, which is to understand our relationship with Eurasia or countries that were formerly a part of the Soviet Union. So in June, Congress passed a bill to sanction, uh, I'm sorry, passed, passed into law uh, sanctions against Russia for their illegal takeover of Crimea. And Crimea is part of the country of Ukraine. Um, and we also uh, approved sanctions for their alleged uh, interfering of our last presidential elections. And now only two senators voted against this. This was, was this was approved unanimously, as they say, on both sides of the camp here, um, that sanctions against Russia were were critical to our national security. So I was looking up some reasons why these senators voted against the sanctions. And Rand Paul out of Kentucky um, is one of the senators. And I found his reasonings for voting against the sanctions really interesting. So he was asked by a reporter, how does America protect its political institutions if we don't sanction? And his words were, sanctions aren't protecting us. Sanctions are just another way we say that we're pissed off and we're just tweaking their noses. The way you protect yourself is you've got to have sovereign security. And what I think he means by that is every country has to take care of their their boundaries and take care of uh, their their security at home, improve security at home. And you won't have to worry about what people are doing abroad to to other countries. So, Alex, let's start with just a basic understanding of what are sanctions and why are they used? So. I think Senator Paul was correct in a level of scrutiny of sanctions because as they have been applied in the past, they have not been precise enough. And I would say that, you know, the best example is with Cuba, with the trade embargo for many decades that really impacted regular people and limited opportunities in their lives. But one of the things that is happening 
More recently, there is an evolution towards smart sanctions that are more precise, actually using a scalpel to do surgery instead of a blunt instrument. And ruining so, everything in the way yeah. that, that happens. So yeah. in this, it means, you know, it's, you can sanction a country, a business, a group of people or individuals, specific people can be blacklisted whereby their assets can be frozen, their properties can be seized, uh, you know, taxes and other burdens can be placed upon them to uh, essentially either shame or coerce them to stop doing whatever bad activity that is. And I would say sanctions begin where diplomacy has failed. They're a last resort, their unilateral action by a country. And so first you want to be able to negotiate behind closed doors or in some other way to essentially find a fix to whatever conflict you have. And if that is impossible, sanctions, and then you ratchet it up a notch, <laughs> then, you're, then you're going hot. It's you know? the warning. It's the warning shot before things get a little messy. Yeah, exactly. And so... Uh, they can have a backlash in many different respects and create new challenges if they are not executed in a proper way. And I would say over the years in the new package that Congress has approved is very targeted, refined. It identifies specific individuals involved in interfering with our elections based on, you know, actionable intelligence. And it's it's a precise package. Right. Uh, and so it's trending in, in the right direction and we'll see what, what the impact is. And so, so should people be worried when they hear in the news that President Trump is meeting behind closed doors with pres with with Putin? Right. It, it, or is he sort of doing his job that you just mentioned, which is sometimes you've got to have closed door meetings with your counterparts to really get a, a, a rich discussion or to move things forward. So should is there a valid concern or is this part of the course of the way, you know, s diplomatic relations work when it comes to the level of the presidents? So you do need the space to have direct engagement with leaders and negotiate, but it's about how it, that direct engagement occurs. In the case of President Trump, it was not executed in a way that was informed uh, if you're referring to the recent cases of, you know, him sitting down for an extended period of time with President Putin, there were not translators from our side. There were not note takers or any other individual that could provide a semblance of accountability for whatever deal he may have struck. He may have sold the farm. You mm -hmm. know, we don't we don't know what was said in, in that meeting. And that's the biggest problem and the challenge in that. How so. There's a way to do it, mm -hmm. and how it has been done by the current administration is not how you have uh, effective diplomacy. You okay, say. and so how do bringing it back to making it relevant for Americans? In what ways are do we do we feel the impact of of sanctions, if if any at all? Well, I wanted to briefly kind of revisit explaining sanctions uh, and why they matter. Essentially, you know, you could say, imagine you're driving on the highway and you see some belligerent driver swerving in lanes. They may be drunk. They may be, 
you don't know what's going on. They're texting on their cell phone, right? <laughs> Which you shouldn't do, by the way, Which folks. Which you should not be doing. Matter of fact, if you're listening to this show and you've got your phone in your face or something, put the phone down and put focus the on the road. <laughs> so there's someone driving poorly. Either the police are going to stop them or other drivers are going to honk and they're going to adjust their their uh, movements because one person is ignoring the rules of the road. So sanctions... Uh, this is a perfect analogy because sanctions are all about international norms, the international rules of the road. Imagine that each of those cars were different countries that had assumed that everybody's going to stay in their lane and they're going to operate based on agreed common principles about what matters and how you should treat the people in your country and what resources and services you should provide those people. And so sanctions are important in terms of naming and shaming those individuals, countries, and and entities that do not stick to the rules of the road. Right. And and I, and if we go along further with that analogy, it's kind of like, okay, if you and I are on the road, two different cars, I maybe have my, you know, kid in the back seat, and if you're coming on towards me and you're breaking all the rules, it it's not only yourself, but you're also potentially hurting my child in the backseat. And and so with, I would say with sanctions, we have to make sure that we understand that it's not just the, the, the people in that country, that there are people like you and me and our families who maybe they travel abroad, for example, and go to these countries, or maybe um, they do business with some of these countries um, that could be impacted by, you know, a country sort of violating the norms, if you will. You you got it. I mean, you should be careful about where you put your money. Yeah. <laughs> you should be careful about your pocket. Yeah. <laughs> Who are you banking with? Right. You know, I mean, there are a lot of these financial institutions and the way economic sanctions operate. They essentially target businesses that may have relationships with some bad actors mm-hmm. who are shady investors who are doing different things. And imagine you have your money in a bank that is also providing services to some oligarch, they get fined by the U.S. government or other entities based on a sanctions regime mm-hmm. for that shady business activity. They lost money. Right. That They're going to have to translate that loss Into somehow. Something. That could be raising the fees on, on your services that they provide you. That could be creating such a challenge for the operations of that bank that there's a run on the bank Mm. and everyone tries to get their money out, which is how in years past has happened in some areas of the world around certain sanctions packages. So it it is important to consider all of this does touch our lives very closely. And speaking of uh, the past, this is a good way to talk about um, the Cold War and do a quick throwback to the Cold War. 2017 marks the 70th year anniversary of the creation of the Truman Act. And some may recall the phrase, the containment policies. But in case you're not familiar, President Truman and Congress back in 1947 agreed to provide military and financial assistance to countries facing the threat of communism and takeover by the Soviet, well, the then Soviet Soviet Union. Uh, back then, there were two countries, uh, Turkey and Greece, that were the focus of the attention. And Congress approved $400 million um, at that time to aid those two, two nations. And this sort of kicked off. So we had the end of this the Second World War, and now we have this kickoff to what would be a 40-year 
um, aggressive campaign by the United States and, and many other countries to stop the Soviet Union and stop the spread of communism. So, Alex, just give us like the one two punch on, you know, communism, first of all, because I know a lot of people wonder, wonder this. But what's what's so bad about communism? Like what are the what's what sort of is the issue that America and many of the Western countries have with communism? Well, the West, I would say, you know, following World War II after new agreements or new rules of the road in terms of international norms were negotiated, they were concerned about the growth of communism in countries in an economic model that limited the personal decisions that people can make about how they wanted to live their lives. You know, this this political philosophy around communism was all about uh, egalitarianism and evening the playing field, but in its implementation, there was a corrupt political elite and a top-down bureaucracies that prevented services from being delivered to people effectively. And now you could say there's, even among younger generations who did not live through some of the challenges of it, there's this mystique of this different time when maybe things were were different as a part of this uh, economic model that challenges Western powers of today. And it's really misinformed because, you know, you can sit down with any uh, older individual from the post-Soviet space who can tell the stories of waiting in lines for certain things and not being able to get the basic uh, resources that they needed to take care of their families and all the various hustles they had to do just to get by. And so the United States and, and other countries were concerned about this political philosophy springing up in other countries and generating a world where you know, a lot of other challenges and potentially fascism could exist and the right of people to choose what they want to do with their lives would be undermined. And I would imagine, too, well, that this might create more of a, an isolation or like more of an isolationist per- relationship. Right now, we're very sort of interdependent with one another in, in terms of travel, business, trade, which was something we talked about in our last of episode. But uh, one could argue that with communism, uh, because everything is state or country controlled, that means that there is little that, say, an individual can do to insert themselves into an economic model, say, start a business if they wanted to trade their, I don't know, bananas with the United States or, you know, travel abroad if they wanted to send their kid to, to you know, Great Britain to, to learn a new, uh, to learn something, right? So there's all these, it seems, at least from what I'm hearing, there are these ways that uh, communism, maybe with good intention, well, there are ways that communism, I think, has good intention in that it wants to make sure everybody gets an equal, you know, playing equal opportunity. But in practice, it actually just leaves a lot of people behind because everything's controlled by the yeah. government. So I think you precisely described what many term the Iron Curtain. There was isolation with the Soviet Union and a number of the post-Soviet countries were political freedoms were restricted. People needed exit visas to get out on very rare occasions and had to stick to a very specific script in terms of their engagement with individuals. I mean, tight political controls on on their activity. And so 
that's why it's been really important since 1991, the end of the Cold War, where a number of independent nations have emerged and tried to forge their own democratic identities. Mm -hmm. Some have done well, some have not done so well, <laughs> because many of them have still have the same political leadership that was running their countries in the Soviet years, mm -hmm. uh, including some of those political elites. Mm -hmm. So, but the generally speaking, the post-Soviet space is largely better off for having the Cold War conclude. Mm -hmm. There are more opportunities for access and exchange between people and information and technology that, that continues to advance and make their lives better, improves their medical care, that, that makes them inspired to continue to strive. Right. And you're a product of that because you were able to travel to Bulgaria, which is a former Soviet uh, country. And if they were closed off, maybe we wouldn't be sitting here. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. so there are, are a number of challenges. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned 1991, the end of of the um, of the of the Cold War. Let's now jump ahead to 2017. Mm -hmm. We are here and uh, Russia has illegally annexed uh, a portion of Ukraine called Crimea. But I was reading an article from USA Today that had argued we're in a state of a new Cold War because, you know, things aren't going well with the United States and Russia. And Russian leaders have come out and said, you know, no, things aren't that bad. We're, we're trying to work it out. Um, but with these uh, with these uh, sanctions that Congress has has approved, um, you know, things things seem rough. So the sanctions, like we talked about earlier, focused on getting back at Russia for taking over, illegally taking over Crimea. Give us a high level overview of the Ukrainian crisis, the conflict over Crimea and America's role, Russia's role in all of this. Got it. So to briefly back up, to provide some context for that, I would say one of the most important milestones of the Cold War was the signing of the Helsinki Final Act in 1975. So this was a treaty where the Soviet Union and Western powers came together and agreed that security is comprehensive. It includes human rights and people and states that are peers in the world should pay attention to how countries are treating their people. And so you could say the Helsinki process, the subsequent conferences that occurred following that act, and later the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, these were all diplomatic fronts for the Cold War and the conflict following the Cold War. In the case of Ukraine, it became the insurance policy that was cashed in when conflict erupted following the revolution of dignity in 2014. This is where a whole bunch of uh, people in Ukraine rose up and said they would not accept the level of corruption that Viktor Yanukovych had had imposed on his people. And v uh, Victor was the then president. Yep. Ousted. Um, later on, Austin, but he was the president at the time of this of this Ukrainian uprising. And so he was focused on vectoring toward his 
obligations, I would say, with Russia and the oligarchy there, as opposed to where the people were trending and wanting to be more Western-oriented. And so they, they rose up and expressed their voice. And um, so what happened was a number of bad actors in eastern Ukraine were empowered by, with Russian resources, to start a movement to separate from Ukraine. And so this was the first front in, in the Donbass, is the region, the eastern Ukraine. And then this conflict continued to grow greater to the point that it allowed mobilization of Russian forces to go into Crimea, where they had, you know, many of the oligarchs had vacation homes. They had a close tie to the Russian ethnic minority in that region and also military installations in the Black Sea. So which is where Crimea is actually located. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, the, in kind of a, a very quiet with no insignias, people talk about the little green men came, you know, into Crimea. They took over city halls and towns and wow. all basic institutions of life. And then all of a sudden they propped up and said, you know, uh, Crimea is no longer a part of Ukraine. And then the Russians organized a sham election that essentially was called a referendum where the Crimean people had wanted to join Russia. And you, you, you all can't see uh, Alex's air quotes, but he had air quotes <laughs> <laughs> in the mix all over there, you know? <laughs> around that whole entire yeah. last last section, uh, because because you know there was an understanding that this this election uh, and this quote and the results uh, were. Were cooked. The books. Were I can't cooked. say the word I want to say on the air, but <laughs> the books were cooked. Okay. And so, the problem with all of this and the big issue here is that Russia changed the rules of the game ever since the first time since World War II, and kind of an understanding of the the rules of how countries should operate. They forcibly annexed land from another country. And this was is ground zero for all sorts of other potential conflicts if they're allowed to get away with this. And I would argue that the political cost and the economic cost has not been high enough. Uh, other countries will say, hey, look, Russia did that. Why can't, Why can't we, we take a piece here? <laughs> and the big issue is this is tied to kin states. So you have Russia arguing that it is protecting its kin or the ethnic minority in Ukraine and in Crimea that ha that speaks Russian, that has a tie to mm. the Russian people. Think about all these other artificial borders around the world where there are, you know, Hungarian ethnic communities in Romania. There are, you know, all of these other overlapping artificial borders that then generate motivation for countries to say, hey, you know, we want to bring all of our people into right. the fold. I mean, there's conflicts raging right now over similar cultural connections between people. This, this might be, I don't know if this is a stretch, but this might be like, you know, I think of Louisiana, there are people there who are mixed with French, right? So this might be like the France looking at the United States talking about we want a part of Louisiana back because 
we have a small segment of the population there that has a mixture of French in them. Exactly. And so this is really, it's about the, the rules of the road. You know, it's so, so important to consider. And I, I, a part of me, you know, wonders, I, I try to always place myself in other people's shoes to understand just why they do the things that they do. And so if I were Russia, you know, just thinking back again to the to the to the Cold War, you know, here you are, this big, big, huge country. You take up, I think, uh, I think Russia takes up like eleven percent of like the Earth's surface. Like it's massive. Um, and now here, here they are, or here we are at the at you know it's nineteen ninety one. You know, we were this part of this huge important empire, and you and you've lost so much. Is there a, a um, reason to 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 believe that maybe you know Russia just wants? to be recognized. Putin, President Putin, just wants to to ensure that um, they he stays relevant, that Russia stays relevant on this changing uh, global stage where you've got different countries that are now part of the European Union. Different countries are making uh, relationships with the United States, right? So is there just a, a self-preservation aspect here of, of what Putin wants from the United States or from the world? I think you answered the question, you know, what, about what his issue with America is exactly. You characterized his thinking. That's scary. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's, it's pretty simple. It's pretty simple. He'd want to maintain his sphere of influence where there are cultural connections, particularly in the post-Soviet space. He wants to ensure, you know, the access to laborers. People don't know tons of, of people from Central Asia. They go to... Uh, Russia for work, you know? So imagine if a number of the countries in Central Asia, like Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, decided that they wanted to vector toward China and be closer with China mm-hmm. or other regional powers, they, you know, it would be an issue for them in terms of maintaining their labor base. Right. 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 And so there are all these different geopolitical interests that they want to protect and they're willing to, you know, go all in to to get it and much to the dismay of the world and and to the dismay of the many human rights defenders and mm. other people that they put in harm's way. Yeah. You know, and stifle their f- political and and other freedoms. And there are there are other countries out there, obviously. Right. So we have allies uh, out in, in Western Europe, uh, like the UK and, and France and others, what is their role in working with um, or sort of negotiating with Russia to ensure that they pay the consequences of what they've done um, with with Crimea? And is it is it working sort of their their effort? So since the beginning of the conflict in 2014, there have been two sets of sanctions packages where the United States and the European Union have been in lockstep on essentially punishing Russia for its involvement in the separatist movement in eastern Ukraine and separately punishing them for forcibly taking Crimea away. And one of the challenges in this is that the U.S., with the interference in our elections, it's our resolve has increased. Mm. We're ready to continue to ratchet up the cost of what they're doing there and what that means. Uh, however, the European Union is more reticent. They have a number of 
countries who have very close economic and cultural and personal ties with Russia, where they receive, you know, a third of the natural gas in Europe from from Russian pipelines and, and other sources. And they have some major companies from from Europe are some of their primary markets for their exports are in Russia. Like like Mercedes Benz, you know, <laughs> that one the, little that one little brand out of Germany, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like those oligarchs, they like to they like to roll in in the real thing. Fa- you know? Okay, all right, and, and no so judgment. It's it's something where it, it's a big challenge. So if you have all of these vested interests, you can't extract yourself from that in the same way. And right. so there is a raging political debate, you know, in in Europe around how much how much they want to stand behind the Ukrainian people. Yeah. And we talked about this actually in our last um, episode when we talked about trade and just how trade between countries does just what you talked about. It, 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 it stops people from going overboard when things get messy. So I'm not going to bomb you right away because, man, you've got those uh, BMWs that I need. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm not going to send my military troops over there because, you know, we've got, like you said, maybe a group of laborers who migrate from one country to that country to for work. And so your existence and my ex- existence are are linked through through various um, through various means, and, and so that's that's where diplomacy should work and mm-hmm. bring together those interests in a constructive way for everyone, rather than somebody belligerently just taking what they want everywhere. Right. right? right. And I, I, I did watch uh, before we wrap up here, I want to just talk a little bit about sort of the, the on the ground activism that's been happening there. That's really interesting to me. And I watched a documentary called Winter on Fire, which covered the youth protests and the student protests um, from 2014 and just the the energy around that and their ability to get the president ousted. Right. Can you just talk about on the ground you know, what you experienced. I know you were there. And so what did you experience there? What was the role of social media in in fueling that protest? And, and is there anything, you know, we can learn here in America from, from that experience? Well, to tell a little bit more of the story of the, the revolution of dignity and why it happened, I was there, I observed the election when Yanukovych was first elected. And then I observed the election where following his ouster. So uh, <laughs> and there was a big change in that time and people were more informed. Social media provided access to understanding the the outside world, you could say, in a way and what is acceptable in terms of the, the conduct of elected officials. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking about a president who took over a national park and created a personal mansion, lavish estate and established a zoo on that national park with birds I had never seen before (laughs) and couldn't tell you what they are now and had an honor guard. I'll I'll say my air quotes this time (laughs) from Russian security officials. Right. And so Yanukovych was corrupt to the maximum. And I think the greatest testament to the Ukrainian people is that following his departure if you will, <laughs> or retreat, he that national park land was restored as a national park. And now people go and they go see this ridiculous estate with all of his vehicles <laughs> and everything and say, hey, this is not what we want for our country. 
we cannot accept this level of corruption. We This has no place here. And families go there and they can see a zoo that's better than the National Zoo, you know. And so that's really important and inspirational that that their response to to what happened there. And so now there's a great challenge ahead in reforming institutions to really meet that expectation where mm-hmm. there's issues in their healthcare system and and uh, you know all their judiciary. There are even issues now where they are making it more difficult for civil society organizations like your your neighborhood community organization to continue to operate mm. or receive funding from from their community. That sounds strikingly familiar. But so we there, won't go there. Are, <laughs> and that's where I think the connection is here. You know, there is there is this this learning that happens among senior leaders in different countries and they see he's doing that. I can do that. She's doing this. Yeah. Maybe I ought to do that. Right. You know. And it creates a, a problematic landscape that stifles the the political and economic freedoms of people. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you wrote recently in an article of yours about the Ukrainian crisis where you say, you know, guaranteeing the restoration of Ukraine's sovereign territory is essential to the future of Europe and Eurasia. It remains the front line of democratic aspirations in the region since the conflict began an unacceptable number of people more than 9,940 people have perished. The United States and its European allies must hold Russia to account. You know, summarize why the Ukrainian crisis matters to us here in America and why what's happening um, or our why our relationship with Russia, you know, means so much to, to our everyday lives. Well, it matters because injustice anywhere matters. I think it's so important to counter and mobilize and empower the people to be able to make decisions about how their lives should be lived. And if more than 1.6 million refugees are displaced in Ukraine, and you know, as I had mentioned there, now it's more than 10,000 people have died, including soldiers and civilians and others, and many more wounded. Uh, this is a humanitarian crisis that people should care about. And as I said, it matters so much to us in terms of the geopolitical landscape is that this the rules of the game were changed by this. Mm-hmm. It, it was a conflict that was conducted in a way that people will analyze for decades to come. Mm-hmm. You know, the way that the little green men went into Crimea and took over institutions, you know, the way that the the separatists were empowered by a neighboring power, Russia. It's it matters to us and it it touches each of our lives because if we can't even assume that the basic rules of the game that countries should abide by and have agreed to and negotiated over decades, uh, if we can't even assume that those will be maintained, you know, we, then we anything can be goes. in danger. Right, right. Can't assume anything. Uh, Canada could come and take over New Hampshire. Yep. I mean, they could, <laughs> <laughs> they could take anything. So. Not that they would. Not nah. they, I love Canada. And I would say one thing that we've really gotten right about our engagement in the region has been foreign assistance, Mm. which is under fire in this current administration, uh, particularly in Eurasia and Europe and elsewhere in the world. We have invested in what you had described, what was invested many years ago in Turkey and Greece. 
that investment then resulted in Turkey and Greece becoming mm. allies in, mm. in the Good North point. Atlantic Treaty Organization and Great NATO point. and close cultural partners right. with us. And that was everything from supporting media independence and, and community organizations right. and infrastructure and education and healthcare. Right. And those are the things. It's, it's cultural diplomacy. It, right. It's affirming our shared values in a way that we can continue to be constructive and thrive together. Right. And, and not just like today, but for the long term. Yeah. It's the long game of trying to make a better world versus taking whatever pieces of the world that you can get right. and probing the limits of what other countries will do to stop you from doing that. Right. You right. Know? Great summary. Great summary. Um, hopefully you all feel as intrigued and curious about um, Eastern Europe and and the, the countries in Eurasia and what's happening in Ukraine and in the Crimea. I certainly, um, you know, learned a lot from this this episode and from my research for this episode. So in true fashion, uh, I have every guest provide me their song, uh, their theme song that encourages them to um dance, stay happy, you know, get into the zone when things are a little crazy. Uh, this is foreign policy in general is just a it can be a very depressing topic. And so I think music is one way we we keep ourselves human and active and happy. So, Alex, what was your song for this episode? Well, I would say my song isn't a happy one. It has it's a little melancholic. Uh, but it's something that keeps my fire burning, it keeps me inspired for for the work that I did. So prodigy of Mob Deep passed away recently after struggling with sickle cell anemia. And one of his last songs was this song called Mystic. And it's really about a song about making your life matter and your choices matter. And it really has a theme of understanding that things happen for a reason and you have to kind of follow that truth. And listening to that, I'll put that on repeat, you know, <laughs> uh, in the office, I'll sit down, I'll start typing and it's fuel for the fire for the work that I do in advancing human rights, fundamental freedoms and, and human dignity. Well, I want to thank you for the work that you do, Alex, and um, I know your family and your friends and everyone who knows you um, it feels as proud of you as I do, and probably more so, and knowing from where you came, uh, you know, a young man out in, in Denver and in, in Portland, uh, you know, just trying to make a way for himself, and here you are today working for a very prestigious organization in Washington, D.C., so thank you again for being here. Thank you for the work that you do. Um, thank you all for listening to this episode of What in the World. Remember that you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash what in the world podcast. We are also on Twitter at W-I-T-W pod. That's W-I-T-W pod um, on Twitter if you if you have a Twitter account. And you can listen to previous episodes of What in the World on Mixcloud. Just go to mixcloud.com slash what in the world podcast. Thank you all again. And until next time. Thank you. Music is powerful, beats and rhymes. Whole nother channel. Don't be so shallow. Expand your taste. It's more to life than you now mind think. And we lie from the refuge. Is anybody out there? It's written in the stars. Look me up there. Two or three bars. Got you pay attention. I'm gifted. My rap is mystic. It's cold.
Wait, wait, wait. Don't go anywhere. We just talked about Ukraine and Russia for the last 45 minutes. So it's only fitting that you tune in to Radio Stoyvesky coming up every Saturday from 12 to 1 on WERA.FM. Jimmy plays awesome music from that region of the world. I love it. I think you'll love it. So have a listen. Thanks.